Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from April 19th by Pastor Randy, titled, It's Time to Focus, Part 1. I want to start with a, with a true story. It, it happened on one September day. It was 99 degrees. It was a September day in San Antonio when a 10-month-old baby girl was accidentally locked in her car by her aunt. So picture the scene. You have this aunt alone with the little girl's mother, and they're frantically running around the car trying to find some way to get in. The next-door neighbor's got a clothes hanger. He's trying to, to, to unlock the car door. And the little girl, she's turning blue. She's got a little bit of foam in her mouth. And that's when Fred Areola, a tow truck driver, he shows up. He quickly assesses the situation. He just takes a hammer and busts the back glass, rescues the little girl. And you'd think he'd be heralded as a hero. But no. The girl's mom was mad because he broke the window out of her car. And he, Fred's uh, left in there thinking, you know, what's more important, you know, a, a glass in a car or a baby girl? And if we're going to live as Christians, if we're going to be in this world and not of it, we have to be able to discern what really matters, what, what's really important in life. Because we live in a world that's full of distractions, especially today when we're... Uh, Living this time where we're isolated and alone, we, we sometimes want to fill our lives with distractions. I got distracted, you know, what can a $3 bottle of, of hair color do for me and change things a little bit? Just to do things differently. You have all these distractions. But the key is, instead of letting the distractions push God out of our life, we allow God to push distractions out of our life. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's just simply Christianity 101 when you're able to focus on what's important and what really matters in life. Let's look at a, just a, a short passage out of a, a parable that Jesus taught in Luke chapter 8. Let's read these couple of verses. This is kind of in the middle of a parable. It says, Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard, and as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. So what Jesus is doing here. He, he's, he's saying there, there are things that come into our lives that, that keep us from being mature, that keep us from growing up and, and being mature. And he uses this illustration of a seed that comes up, and it's, it's on its way to growing and producing fruit. But then all of a sudden, these thorns grow up around it, and they choke it out. And, and they keep it from growing up and being mature and producing everything. They keep it from hearing God. And that's exactly what happens in our lives if we're not careful. We'll have this distracted mind. There are other things that will keep us from focusing on what we need to focus on. And Jesus even gives some examples of what does that. First thing he says that does that is, is the worries. People get worried. They get preoccupied and, and, and with what's happening here and what's happening there. And it fills in with worries. The second thing he says it does this is riches. People will get up in the morning, go to work, work all day, come home, flop in bed, dead tired, and get the next morning and do it again. Why? Because they're chasing the dollar. They, they want that money. They want to be able to buy stuff. And then he said the third thing that keeps us from being focused is, is the pleasures of life. Uh, one of the greatest ways of explaining this came from a book that I read by Philip Yancey. It's called A Hunger for God. And this is what he says uh, in that book and that, that keeps us from focusing on God. He says this, the greatest enemy of a hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but the endless nibbling at the table of the world. 
It's not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. For all the ill that Satan can do, his most deadly weapons are not the poison of evil, but the simple pleasures of earth. There are your basic meat and potatoes, coffee and gardening, reading and decorating, traveling, investing, TV watching, internet surfing, shopping, exercising, and collecting. All these things are, are tools, they're, they're weapons in the hands of Satan. And, and, and Satan, he will do what he can do to, to get our focus on God and to get it on, on the, what's temporary, to get it on the trivial, to, to get it on what's urgent. See, Satan, his goal is not to convince us there is no God or that there is no heaven or, or there is no hell. He just tries to convince us there is no hurry and we can get ourselves wrapped up in what's going on in the world we have to be focused. And you add to that that we live in a world uh, where we're constantly using our senses of what we can see, what we can hear, and what we can touch. And it's so easy to forget that there's another world that's even more real than this one that we can't see, hear, and touch. And so what I want us to do today and next week and maybe in the week after that is I want us to, to go back and look at a passage of Scripture that gets us to focus on what's really important, pulls us in and draws us to not be caught up in distractions, but, but gets us to focus on what, what's really important. And so the one verse that we're going to be centering on today and next week is found in Micah 6, verse 8. So let's look at that. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So here's Micah, and he's keeping it simple, right? He's, he's boiling it down to this is what matters most. Now, Micah was a minor prophet. Now, minor doesn't mean he was less than other prophets. That just means he kept things simple. He wasn't as wordy as other prophets. And Micah was a prophet uh, during the, uh, the eighth, well, about 8th century B.C. It, it was, it, it was a, uh, well, we'll talk about that difficult time a little bit later. But, but what Micah does is that it just keeps things very simple and focused. Uh, let me ask you this. Are, are you familiar with, with the name Bennett Cerf or Theo Geisel? Bennett Cerf was the one who founded created Random House Publishing. Theo Geisel was one of his most popular authors. And one day, Bennett made Theo a bet that he couldn't write a children's book and use just 50 words. And Theo took him up on it. Now, we don't know him as Theo Gossel. We know him as Dr. Seuss. And he wrote One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, sold over 200 million copies using just 50 words. And what he says says, you would think that 50 words would be a constraint, but it actually produced a greater creativity because he had to focus on what was most important, and it made him a better writer. And Micah, that's what he's doing. He's keeping things simple for us. He's keeping things simple and very focused. And during Micah's time, the Assyrians were threatening both the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel. In fact, while Micah was still alive, they invaded the northern kingdom of Israel. So Micah, what he's doing, he goes to both the nations, both goes to the, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And he's trying to get them to understand why this is going on, why this is happening. Uh, and he, he's telling them, look, the reason that, that this military might is coming against you is because you are morally weak. So it's not that they're so strong militarily, it's just that you're so weak morally. The reason that you're vulnerable from being overthrown from the outside is because, and catch this, you're not taking care of the most vulnerable people inside your own borders. 
So let's go back and let's start in Micah chapter 6, the few verses before that verse 8, and let's get a context for, for what's going on. So Micah 6, verses 1 and 2. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will not dispute. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever been sued? Can you imagine getting sued by God? And so that's the setup that we're given. It is a courtroom type of setup. And God causes his witnesses to mountains. The reason he calls the mountains is because the mountains have been there long enough to see how faithful and good God is and how bad the Israelites are acting. And, and, and so the mountains have been there long enough to testify to these things. And then God makes his first argument in verses 3 through 5. My people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. My people remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him. And from Shittim to Gigal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. God is basically saying here, look, I've been good to you. I've kept my covenant. When you were still slaves in Israel, did I not come and free you? Was I not good to you? Did I not give you good leaders? And Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And when Balak tried to get Balaam to curse you, did I not fill Balaam's mouth with blessing instead? And then when he's talking about Shittim and Gilgal, remember last week we talked about how he led them over to, to Gilgal when, when they crossed the Jordan River. He's saying, look, when you came across the Jordan River, when it was at flood stage, so you couldn't go into the promised land, did I not take care of that too? Have I not been good to you? And here's the point that God is making. Whenever we forget how good God has been to us, then how we treat other people can become blurry. And the people know that the case against them is strong. And so they begin to try and plea bargain with God. They begin to try and get a way out. That's what happens in the next couple of verses, in verses 6 and 7. It says, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling cows? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? So they're basically saying this, okay, God, what's it going to take for you to drop the charges? What if we just ramp up our worship? What if we just bring you more sacrifices? Will that do it? The idea here is, God, is there something that we can do inside your temple so that we can continue to live the way we want to outside your temple? Do you ever know people like that? that think they can come to church and, and just by being in church and, and taking that hour, two hours out of the week, whatever it is to come to church, that then they continue living on the rest of the week and, and God's going to be okay with that? God wants us to know that what we do inside the walls of the church should have an impact on our behavior outside the walls. And then we come to verse 8 where he says he's told him, uh, old man, what's good, what does, require, what does the Lord require of you but justice, mercy, and humility? He says he's told you what's good. Uh, what God is saying here is that you need to focus on the people who do not get focused on. See, this is what made Israel different from all the other religions around them. All the, the ancient gods, the small g gods, they focus on the royalty. They focus on the, the, the princes and, and, and the, the kings and queens and generals and things like that. But, 
But Christianity has always dealt with the most marginalized people on earth, those who are the outcasts, those who are put to the side. And God saying, look, this is nothing new. Focusing on the people who are the outcasts, the people who are down and out, the people who, who have been trampled on by other people on this earth, that's nothing new. Let me read you just a few verses, three or four verses out. and We could do this all day. I could read you hundreds of verses. Let's just read three or few, th- three or four, so you'll know. Uh, just get an idea of how when God's saying, I've told you this, you know, you know this, I've told you this, what he's talking about. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 10. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Then in Psalm 146, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord protects the strangers. He supports the fatherless and the widow, but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Proverbs, he who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. And then one last one in Zechariah. Thus has the Lord of hosts said, dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Now, I hope you never get sued by God. But if you do, don't dare make the case that God's been unclear about what he wants and what he wants of us as his people. We have a Lord and Savior who was born among the poor in the poorest of conditions, who went and ministered to the outcast, the down and out, those that, that everybody else wouldn't even want to look at those who everybody else would pass over. And we need to own this as a church. And right after God says, Micah 6, 8, you know what I've required of you, old man, but to do justice, mercy, and to walk humbly. This is what he says he's seeing instead. He, sa- he, he says, this is what's been going on in the land instead. That's picking up at verse 9. Let's read that. The voice of the Lord will call to the city. And it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed his time? Is there yet a man in this wicked house along the treasures of wickedness and a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence. Her residents speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Never once. Does God criticize the people because they aren't coming to the temple and, and offering their sacrifices and that they're still doing these, these religious activities, but they're completely overlooking the people all around them. And believe me, they're all around them who are being taken advantage of. So God takes his people to court because of the way that they are treating people who have been made in his image. Micah has another contemporary, another prophet. His name is Isaiah. And they ministered during the same amount of time, during the same timeline, during the 8th century B.C. And here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 1. Why are your multiplied sacri- what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? 
Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and a solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. These are the very things that God commanded them to do. Now he says he's hating them. Then he tells us why in the next verses. He says, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, and see, I did when they pray, they lift their hands up to God. He's, God says, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do what is good. Here's their problem. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the or- or- orphan. Plead for the widow. So God's saying, look, you need to take care of of the people who are disadvantaged around you, the people who are being trampled on by everybody else around you. Don't think that you can come up and offer up a few sacrifices and then go out and treat people any way you want to and think I'm cool with that. So, so what they're pleading, what they're trying to do is find a way to buy off God. And that's in a sense what our religions want to do. God, name your price. What is it that we can do that, that's going to make you okay with us and how we're living? Can we bring you more sacrifices? Can we keep some more commandments? What can we do to get you to drop the charges? It, it, it's, it's people trying to, to control God and say, God, I paid you off, so therefore I'm accepted. And, and, and so, you know, you shouldn't demand anything of me when I leave here. I can just live the way I want. And so what he is trying to get them to do is to focus on justice, mercy, and humility. And for the rest of the day, today, we're going to look at justice and we'll look at mercy and humility next week. Uh, so let's start off looking at justice. Let me just give you these two verses in Psalm. Psalm 89, or three verses altogether. Another one's in Amos. Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. Psalm 33, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. So God does just like justice. He is justice. And then Amos, Amos says, I hate I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So God isn't saying that offering is bad, that worship is bad. He's saying, don't think you can buy me off with those things and live like you want to. Instead, let justice come like a mighty river that's overflowing its banks. Let it just sort of roll through your lives. See, the, the thing that, that we need to understand is that we, as just human beings, we value justice because we're made in the image of God. That should be important to us because we're reflecting God. If, for example, a bear pounces on a, a moose calf, the bear doesn't feel guilty for, for killing that moose calf. The other animals, they, they don't start a protest, you know, defend the rights of the vulnerable animals among us. No, that doesn't happen. See, if you think, if a person thinks that they're just here by random chance, by evolution, why should you even care about injustice? You should expect it if you're a person who, who believes in just we're here by evolution. The world view of evolution of, of, of that is just survival of the fittest, right? The strong is going to survive. But if you live in a world where you desire to see justice, that's because you've been made in the image of God. 
We say it this way in our culture. We say, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a politician. It doesn't matter if you're uh, in law enforcement. Nobody's above the law. Uh, that, that's the way we put it. Uh, because that desire for justice is in us because we created the image of God. And there's different types of justice. Uh, it's just not it's just not retributive retributive type of justice where we want to uh, get somebody back for what they've done wrong. Where we want them to pay for what they've done wrong. But it's also a restorative type of justice. There's also a type of justice where you want to protect the innocent. Let me give you an example out of out of Second Samuel, uh, verse chapter eight. It says, "So David reigned over all Israel." And David administered justice and righteousness for all the people. It doesn't mean that David was prosecuting everybody. David just made a way for everybody to flourish. So let's understand justice a little bit further. And to do that, I want us to look at, at a parable that's very familiar to us. It's the Good Samaritan. In fact, I'm not going to read it because we still got lots of other scriptures I want to read today. Uh, but I'm assuming that most of you are familiar with that parable of the Good Samaritan. Where you have this guy who gets mugged and left for dead in a ditch. You have two religious guys just walk by him, do nothing. Then a despised Samaritan comes by, and he gives him oil, he gives him wine. Uh, now, a Jew would recognize those two things you use in temple worship. In other words, things that you'd use in the worship of God, things that you do inside these walls, it's making a difference on, on what you do in life. So, but, but what I want to do is I want to take from this parable of the Good Samaritan and, and look at some things that address justice. First of all, what is justice? What does justice do? Number one, we don't do things that put other people in a ditch. To be a just person means you don't cheat other people. You don't, you don't take advantage of other people. See, during Micah's lifetime, the Assyrians, they came through and invaded the northern kingdom. So you had all these widows, all these orphans, all these refugees flooding into the southern kingdom. And so people... People that were left in the northern kingdom and then people in the southern kingdom, they were taking advantage of them. Let's go back to Micah chapter 2 and see what was going on. It tells how they were being taken advantage of. Micah 2, uh, they coveted fields and then seized them and houses and take them away. They rob a man in his house, a man in his inheritance. Then chapter 3, now hear this. Heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a tribe. Her priests instruct for a price and her prophets divine for, for money. Yet they lean on the Lord saying, is not the Lord in our midst? Calamity will not come upon us. So basically what's going on, Mike is saying you have all these prophets and, and, and priests and uh, officials who are taking advantage of the weak. And what they would say, they would say, we haven't done anything illegal. We offered them this amount of money for their house, for their land, for their possessions, and they just took it. Listen, something can be legal and not be moral and not be just. The standard isn't, is it legal? The standard is, isn't, is everybody else doing it? The standard is, does it reflect the standard of God? Does it reflect our Heavenly Father? One more verse out of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 22. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also, do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. So God's been clear. Don't do things that put people in a ditch. So number one, if we're going to understand justice, we're going to understand that we don't do people wrong. 
And number two, we help those who have been wronged. See, justice is, is more than just not doing anything to put people in a ditch. Justice is is helping people who've been in a ditch. It's refusing to avoid people who are in the ditch. See, these two guys, they walk by and, and, and they say, I didn't put this guy in a ditch. It's not on me. It's not my fault he's in a ditch. But Jesus didn't fault them for putting them in a ditch. He faulted those two religious guys for not helping the guy out of the ditch. So justice is not just doing bad. Justice is also helping those who have been wrong. Listen to, to these two verses. Isaiah 1. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. So that's a whole other side of justice. In Proverbs, it says this. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth. Judge righteously and defend the rights of the afflicted and the needy. So number one, we don't do wrong. Number two, if we're going to understand justice, we help those who have been wronged. And number three, we try to right what has been wrong. See, justice is more than helping somebody get out of the ditch. Justice is also making sure that the road is safer so no one ever winds up in the ditch. Justice is being aware that there's structures, there's, there's systems, there's things that exist that may be legal, but they're taking away people's opportunity to flourish. Taking, they're, they're not making the, the playing field level for everybody. Let me just kind of sum this this part up with an example. This year is an election year, and we know it's going to get ugly. Whether we're quarantined or isolated or what, it's just going to get ugly. So let me be an equal opportunity offender here to whatever side that you may be on. We have to speak up for the unborn. We also need to speak up for those who are refugees and those who are in detention centers. We need to speak up for, for vets who aren't getting the care that they should be. We should be speaking up for everybody because everybody is worthy of dignity because they've been created in the image of God. So here's where Micah wants us to wind up. Micah chapter 4. And he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine, under his fig tree, and no one, uh, with no one to make them afraid. For the mouth Lord of the host has spoken. See, that's the world we should be seeking. That that's the world that we want. In in Mozambique's a good example of this. A few years ago, they were involved in a civil war. The civil war went on for 15 years. There were over a million people who were abused or murdered. But the churches, they wound up leading a march that led to peace and a peace treaty between the, the warring factions. But now you had a nation full of all these weapons that were everywhere. And so unrest and war could just rise up at any minute. So what the churches do, did, they created a program called Swords in the Plowshares. Where if you brought a weapon in, you could get a plow or you could get a shovel. One village brought in a whole cache of weapons and they got a tractor. Churches gathered over 600,000 weapons. And they took some of them and turned them into a work of art. Here's a picture of, of the tree of life as that's called as a result. Now this is just a bunch of guns and weapons that have been molded and bringing about this tree. In other words, they're taking what was good what was evil and now allowing it to be used for good that's what god wants us to do he wants us to take the 
the things around us that are uh, that are evil, that are unjust, and mold them into something that can be used to bring about justice, that can be used to glorify Him. A good New Testament verse for this is Romans 6.13. Romans 6.13 says this, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So you have an opportunity as a Christian, to present your mind, your eyes and ears, your mouth, your body as instruments or weapons of evil or for good. Think of it like this. A few years ago, y'all remember Snowden, Robert Snowden. He released all those government secrets, you know, and this called untold damage and ramifications. In fact, uh, when we were over in, in, in East Asia, there were missionaries who had to leave the field because of ramifications from all these secrets that he released uh, back then. So what he did is he, he allowed his, his mind, his talent, what he knew to be used for the enemy. Way back in 1985, and I don't remember this, but, but there was a, the associate director of the KGB. He defected to the United States, and he brought all his secrets with him, how they had infiltrated uh, our government and, and, and how they infiltrated us in the United States. And what, basically what he did is he took his, all he knew, all the, the knowledge that he had of the spying that was going on for the enemy, and that was used for us. And now he brought to us. Think of it like this. What did the kingdom of God gain when C.S. Lewis stopped being an uh, agnostic uh, atheist and committed his pen and his mind to the cause of Christ? What did the kingdom of God gain when Chuck Colson stopped being a cynical, cold-hearted politician and instead began to use his, his knowledge, his ability to communicate for the cause of Christ? What is the kingdom of God losing because you're not allowing your mind, your, your will, your emotions, your, your thoughts to be used as a weapon for Christ. Don't get distracted. Don't allow our world to distract you on what you should be focused on. And that's justice. That God has been so good to you. If you remember how good God is good to you, that will help you see to treat other people better. So what does God want from us? To do justice love mercy, and to walk humbly with Him. May that be what we focus on. Let's pray together. Father, we have this time in which it's so easy for us to get distracted from what really matters. Uh, and Father, I pray that, that we might be a people who do focus on what's really important. Father, may, may we not allow the conditions that, and what's going on around us in the world to, to, to cause us to miss those who are being overlooked, those who are marginalized in our community. And, and may we be willing to, to not just say we didn't do anything to put them there, it's not our fault that they're there, and not just go and help them up, but to make things better so that other people won't fall in those same ditches too. Father, may we be people who do not claim to love you and not have a love for others who you place in our lives. May that be us, Father. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.